0: That great bishop and doctor of the Church, St. Augustine says, The man vowed and consecrated to God, inasmuch as he dies to the world, lives for God, is a sacrifice. Close quote. What is a sacrifice? In the strict sense, a sacrifice is an offering by a priest of a visible object to God in order to give honor or adoration to God, to offer God thanks to make a favor of God, or to make reparation. The object is first offered, then destroyed or changed. Since sacrifice is an act of worship, it is an honor reserved to God alone. God's acceptance of the sacrifice symbolizes his acceptance of the heart of the giver. The sacrifice is at the very heart of the religious life. This morning... On the occasion of the first profession of vows, sisters sister is about to make an offering to God, a sacrifice. So this morning, in the hopes of gaining a deeper understanding of the properties of a pleasing sacrifice, we'll take a closer look at a particular sacrifice from the Old Testament, though so pleasing to God that he sent down fire from heaven to consume it. Obviously, when we're standing here in Carmel, the first one that comes to mind is the sacrifice of your Holy Father, St. Elias and 3 Kings 16, but today instead we're going to take a closer look at the sacrifice offered by King David. A little background to put the story into context. David's the king, and for reasons that are interesting but we don't have time to go into right now, a pestilence has just struck down 70,000 men of Israel, and now there's an angel of the Lord standing next, uh, up there next to Jerusalem ready to strike it. So first we'll read the story. For the sake of the time, we'll cut a few parts out, and then we'll take a closer look at it. So we'll pick up the story from the first book of Chronicles, chapter 21. Quote, And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces, and David said to God, It is I who have sinned and done very wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. Let not the plague be upon thy people. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad, the prophet of the Lord, to say to David that David should go up and rear an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up with the prophet's word. Now Ornan was threshing wheat, and as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went forth from the threshing floor, did what to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it, and let my Lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for a cereal offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy it for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer holocausts, burnt offerings, which cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan six hundred shekels of gold by weight for the site, and David built there an altar to the Lord, and presented holocausts and peace offerings, and called upon the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offerings. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into the sheath. Close quote, the inspired inerrant word of God. Right, there's a lot there. Let's start by uh, considering the location. David was commanded to go up and raise an altar on a particular threshing floor. Okay, great. So what's that supposed to mean? We need to know what a threshing floor is. A threshing floor is a big old flat circle area of, of hard ground range anywhere from 50 feet to 300 feet in diameter. Typically, you'd be out in some big, breezy, open part of the country or up on a hilltop, a flat hilltop. Back in biblical times, small grains like wheat and barley first harvested with a sickle and then bound into sheaves, and the sheaves were carted off to the threshing floor. Then the sheaves would be thrown on a fleshing floor, and oxen would be driven around the, the area to trample out the grain. Sometimes the people used flails. A flail's an old-fashioned tool for threshing grain. It's got two rods, they're kind of thin rods. One's maybe four foot long, and then with a piece of rope or strap leather, there's another one, maybe three, three and a half feet long. And uh, then they, they beat on the th- on the sheaves with the flail. That's where you get the word "flailing about" with the arms or whatever. But they're they're smacking that, and that knocks the grain loose. Or they might uh, hitch up a sledge to the oxen and drag that around the sheaves drag that all over the grain, okay? Anyway, the result of all this is a big old mess of straw and, and, and grain and chaff and dust spread all over the threshing floor. The next step is winnowing. Winnowing, take, you take a winnowing fan, it's not it, it, it looks like a big old uh, kind of a, a grain scoop type of an operation, because that's what it is, or a big uh, dust pan, or a long fork, and it tosses the grain up into the air, and then the, and, and the grain will fall back down, and the chaff and the straw blow away. And that's what happens uh, with the breeze. That's where you get the same uh, separating the wheat from the chaff. Last step in the process is to shake the grain in the sieve to remove any little dense stones or, or, or rocks, little debris like pebbles. Okay, so that was it. Anyway, now we know what a threshing floor is and how a grain was thrashed uh, back in the old days. Second Chronicles one gives us a few more important details about this particular Threshing floor. Quote Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, on the threshing floor of Ornam e Jebusite, close quote. Now that is an important piece of information. It's the very place where King Solomon, the son of David, built the temple, this threshing floor that David built to altar. The fact that it's Mount Moriah tells us something else too. Mount Moriah is the very same hilltop on which Abraham had been ordered to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, and was stopped by the Lord. We can read about that in Genesis 22. So this threshing floor that David has been ordered to go up and, and, and build an altar on and made a pleasing sacrifice. That was also the site of the sacrifice of Abraham, as well as the site of the temple. And that's not the only thing there. There's also a large flat stone there. It's a piece of exposed bedrock. In the Temple of Solomon, this rock was in the floor. It was the, the surface of the, in, the, in the floor of the Holy of Holies, and that was where the Ark of the Covenant was placed on that, on that stone. Today there's a huge mosque on that site. It's called the Dome of the Rock, and it's named that because of the rock. That flat stone is still there, and that's what the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem is built over. Okay, so what? Well, since ancient times, the Jews have called that particular rock the foundation stone. They have all kinds of legends about it. For example, there's a lot of them, but we'll just mention one The example. They think it's a capstone. and It's just a legend, but a capstone, but it holds back the disorder and chaos from the underworld. That there's some kind of opening to the underworld. This is capping it off, and all that disorder and chaos is capped off, and that keeps it from erupting out and flooding over the world. Okay, now with all that in mind, let's consider these lines from the 16th chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel. Our Lord is speaking to Simon Peter, quote, I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. Close quote. The inspired, inerrant word of God. All right, let's spend a few moments unpacking three important points that the Lord has just made in light of what we've seen so far. First point In the line, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Here we see our Lord changing Simon's name to Peter. That means rock. When we talk about petrified wood, we mean wood that's been petrified, it's been turned into stone. In other words, our Lord has said, Thou art rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Earlier in the Gospel of St. Matthew, in chapter 7, our Lord had stated that the wise man builds his house upon a rock, and of course, in the Old Testament, who was the wisest man? It was King Solomon. And just as King Solomon had built his temple on a rock, the foundation stone, so also our Lord, who said of himself that he was greater than Solomon, so also our Lord built his church on a rock, a living rock, a new foundation stone, St. Peter the Apostle. So what the foundation stone was to the temple, St. Peter is to our Lord's church. In other words, the foundation stone is a type or a prefiguring of St. Peter. The remarkable difference is that our Lord has built his church on a living stone, and with living stones, which is what St. Peter was talking about in today's epistle, what St. Paul refers to in the second chapter of his epistle to Ephesians. So Solomon the king, the son of David, built his temple on the foundation stone on Mount Moriah. Now we see Christ the king, the son of David, building his church on a new living foundation stone, Peter, which he moves from Mount Moriah in Jerusalem to New Hill, the Vatican Hill in Rome. So the first important point here is that St. Peter is the foundation stone for the Church of Jesus Christ. Second point, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Our Lord is pointing out that His new foundation stone, the foundation stone of His Church, St. Peter, is a new capstone responsible for suppressing disorder and chaos of the underworld, preventing it all from erupting out and flooding the world. His audience certainly knew what he was referring to there. So the second important point is that St. Peter, the new foundation stone, has a crucial role in preventing all hell from breaking loose. Third point, I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. In the olden days, cities had walls with gates, so being given the keys to the kingdom... Or The keys to the city was a symbol of being given a position of very great trust and honor. a symbol of being trusted with a very real power in terms of safeguarding the people. So here our Lord is referring to an event that's recorded in the 22nd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Back when Hezekiah, a descendant of King David, was the king of Israel. Through the prophet Isaiah, God orders King Hezekiah to replace his old prime minister with a new prime minister. Lord also says this new prime minister, and I quote, "...shall be as a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will lay the key of the house of David upon his shoulder, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open." Close quote. In other words, Jerusalem had prime ministers that ruled in the name of the Davidic kings. These prime ministers were act, to act as fathers to the king's subjects were given the keys to the kingdom. So our Lord, says the son of David, has just appointed a prime minister over his heavenly kingdom here on earth, and he expects his prime minister, St. Peter, to act as a father to his subjects. Of course, what do we call our Lord's prime minister? We call him our Holy Father. Our Lord gives to the Holy Father the keys to the new divided kingdom, along with the power to bind and loose, the power to pass judgment. So that's the third point. Our Lord has just appointed St. Peter to be his prime minister and given power over the kingdom of heaven. So again, the three important points here. First, St. Peter is the foundation stone for the Church of Jesus Christ. Second, St. Peter, the new foundation stone, has a critical role in preventing all hell from breaking loose. And third, St. Peter is the prime minister of our Lord. He's the vicar of Christ. And our Lord has specifically given him power to pass judgments in the kingdom of heaven. All right. Let's start tying all this together. The threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, prefigures a number of things. At one level... It's a type of the church, which is clear not only from the context, but also from other scriptural past- passages. For example, St. John the Baptist uses this exact imagery when he's speaking of our Lord. We want to keep in mind that St. John ba- the Baptist audience already knows all these details that we've just learned about the threshing floor and the foundation stone. Okay, So here's St. John the Baptist speaking of our Lord. Quote, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his granary. The chaff he will burn with unquestionable fire. Close quote. That's in Matthew chapter 3. In his commentary on this passage, that great Jesuit, Father Cornelius Ilapide, wrote The winnowing fork symbolizes the judgment of Christ, by which the thoughts, words, and deeds of each man will be aired out and examined. The good will be separated from the evil. The threshing floor symbolizes the church. Chaff symbolizes evil men who will be burnt with the fires of hell. The wheat symbolizes the just and holy men whom Christ will gather into his granary, which symbolizes heaven and the company of the angels and saints and the church triumphant. So the threshing floor of Ornan symbolizes the Catholic Church, and the fact that the foundation stone is right there in the middle of the threshing floor symbolizes the church's union with the foundation stone of our Lord's Church, our Holy Father, the Pope. What about the flails and oxen and sledges? They symbolize the trials and tribulations of life. Obviously the sacrifice of Abraham, which took place in that threshing floor, began with his son carrying the wood up for the sacrifice up the hill to that place, but finished with the holocaust of a ram. That's a clear prefigurement of the sacrifice of our Lord on a spot very nearby called Calvary. The peace offerings and bloody holocausts that King David offered up in that very place also prefigure the holy sacrifice of the Mass. It's especially easy to see once we consider a few features of the peace offerings. Alfred Eidersheim, he's an Austrian Jew became a Christian in the, in the middle 1800s, describes the peace offering, quote, The most joyous of all sacrifices was the peace offering. In peace offerings, the sacrificial meal was the point of main importance. The sacrifice was waved before the Lord in order to present the sacrifice, as it were, to the Lord, and then to receive it back from him. The priest put his hands under those of the person offered the sacrifice and moved the sacrifice upwards and downwards, right and left. Close quote. Upwards and downwards, right and left. What's that? It's the sign of the cross. So, peace offering involves offering a sacrifice to God, which is presented by making, in union with the priest, the sign of the cross of the gifts, and then receiving them back in a sacrificial meal. It's a clear prefigment of a holy sacrifice in the Mass. Of course, the sacrifice of the temple, all of which took place in that very same spot, also prefigured the holy sacrifice of the Mass, being offered in union with the Pope. But we don't have any time to get into that today. So what does all this have to do with the first profession of vows today? As we've seen, since sacrifice is an act of worship, is an honor reserved to God alone. God's acceptance of the sacrifice symbolizes the acceptance of the heart of the giver. We saw an example of just that when we saw the fire fall from heaven and consume the sacrifice of King David. God was pleased with King David's sacrifice, and especially his heart. And what was in David's heart? What did he say? When speaking of the sacrifice, David said, I will pay the full price. I will not offer holocaust to the Lord, which cost me nothing. I will not ask for sacrifices which cost me nothing. I will pay the full price. Father Colin, a redemptorist theologian who will follow here, notes, quote, Profession is a pledge of service to God. But more than that, it is a kind of a spiritual holocaust. It is the holiest mystical sacrifice, the most fruitful one after the mass and martyrdom. Close quote. St. Thomas says that by profession, religious offer a holocaust to God. David paid the full price and offered oxen as a holocaust to God. What does sister have to offer as a holocaust to God? Can she possibly say with King David, I will not offer a holocaust which costs me nothing. I will pay the full price. By her vow of poverty, she will sacrifice her right to own creatures. By the vow of chastity, she will sacrifice her right to human love and a family. By the vow of obedience, she will sacrifice her independence. By means of three vows, she will sacrifice her attachment to creatures. But not out of fear or contempt for created things, but precisely so her heart can be free for the Creator. By her sacrifice, she leaves all in order to find all. There are divine paradoxes here. By the vow of poverty, yes, she renounces created things, but she has found the infinite. By the vow of chastity, yes, she renounces the joy of human love and raising her own family, but she's found another love, infinitely superior, and she's found a spiritual family here in karma. By the vow of obedience, yes, she renounces her right to follow her own will. And in so doing, she's discovered the only true liberty, that beautiful freedom of the sons of God. Laquius contritus est nos liberati sumus. The snare is broken, and we are free. She has chosen God. She sacrifices all in order to find all. And speaking to sister, you better be able to say, I will not offer sacrifices which cost me nothing. I'll pay the full price. Can't hold anything back. Those can't just be words. We have far, far too many religious and priests who just mouth words. Words. Where's their heart? Where's their heart? Someone has to love him. Love is not loved. Of ourselves we are so weak, left to ourselves, we'll naturally flee from the cross. Turn to our lady. Place your vocation in motherly hands. Ask her to perfectly preserve your vocation and to nurture it. Help you perfectly fulfill it. Ask her to obtain for you the strength to say, "I will not offer sacrifices which cost me nothing. I'll pay the full price." Carmel is the threshing floor in which the Lord wants you to offer sacrifice. Strengthened by his infinitely pleasing sacrifice, represented daily on this holy altar, in union with the foundation stone, our Holy Father, Benedict XVI. Formation, obedience, your holy rule, the trials and tribulations of community life will serve as so many flails to batter you, so many oxen to trample you, so many sledges to drag over you in order to thrash. But what reparation you can make, what expiation you can make. And if you embrace it all with love, what a powerful counterweight to the sins of this world seated in wickedness. How many apostolic works can you support if you can truly say, I will not offer sacrifice which cost me nothing. I'll pay the full price. What about the winnowing fan? St. Louis de Montfort comments, quote, the Holy Spirit compares the cross sometimes to a winnowing fan, which separates the grain from the chaff and dust. Like the grain before the fan, let yourself be shaken up and tossed about without resisting, for the father of the household is winnowing you and will soon put you in his granary. Close quote. The cross is the winnowing fan. The cross... Is the winnowing fan separating the g- grain from the chaff and dust? Embrace the cross. Embrace the cross. After all, if you Carmelites don't love and embrace the cross, then who will? If you Carmelites can't say, I will not offer sacrifices, that would cost me nothing. I'll pay the price, the full price. If you can't say that, then who can? And who will? Profession is a kind of spiritual holocaust. It is the holiest mystical sacrifice, the most fruitful one after the Mass, martyrdom. Quote, In olden days, the holocaust was always consumed by fire, in the professional holocaust, love takes the place of fire. It is solely because of love that the religious has given, vowed, consecrated, and immolated herself. Close quote. In the first pages of her book of spiritual notes after she'd become a religious, St. Bernadette wrote, Why have I come here? Unless to love our Lord with my whole heart. To prove my love to him. Following his example, I should suffer and sacrifice all generously to him. In the olden days, the Holocaust was always consumed by fire. In the professional Holocaust, love takes the place of fire. Saint Teresa, the child Jesus, said, My vocation is love. I become a carmelite to love Christ and to make him loved. In the olden days, the Holocaust was always consumed by fire. In the professional Holocaust, love takes the place of fire. He isn't loved out there. The Lord isn't loved out there. He's despised. He's ignored, mocked, blasphemed, treated with contempt. If the world could re-crucify him, they would. Love is not loved. If you Carmelites aren't going to lovingly allow yourself to be winnowed by the cross of the Lord, if you aren't each able to say, I will not offer sacrifices which cost me nothing, I'll pay the full price. If you Carmelites won't allow yourselves to be set on fire, to be absolutely consumed with the love of Jesus Christ, then Who will? Who will? On this eve of the Feast of Divine Mercy, let us close with a few brief thoughts you should make your own. They're taken from St. Therese's beautiful act of oblation to merciful love. Oh my God, most blessed Trinity, I desire to love you and make you loved. In order to live in one single act of perfect love, I offer myself as a victim of Holocaust to your merciful love, asking you to consume me incessantly, allowing the waves of infinite tenderness shut up within you to overflow my soul, that thus I may become a martyr of your love, O my God. May this martyrdom, after having prepared me to appear before you, finally cause me to die, May my soul take its flight without any delay into the eternal embrace of your merciful love. I want, O my beloved, at each beat of my heart, to renew this offering to you an infinite number of times, till the shadows having disappeared, I may be able to tell you of my love in an eternal face to face. O my God, love is not loved. But I desire to love you and make you loved. I desire to love you and make you loved. Amen.